Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mmm, 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 mmm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Thank you very much for listening to Try Love, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema and Trilon you and at trilon.org where you can get tickets and merch and other cool ways to support the trilon i'm jason daphnis uh i'm oh man i had this down pat and i screwed it up i'm daphnis jason by dennis out of jennifer and you can find me on twitter at nintendoofus i'm cody narvison my first sweetheart was a boat and you can find me on twitter at cody underscore bh when your head says one thing and your whole pod says another, your head always loses. I'm Harry Mack, and you can find me on Twitter at Shitaki Harry. And I'm Aaron uh, Key Largo Montego. Baby, why don't we go uh, down on my Twitter at RB, please, and give me a follow because I need my ratio up. As you might have guessed, we are kicking off the Florida Noir series um, at the Trilon with Key Largo, a 1948 film directed by John Houston. And I'll let Aaron take it away as far as what that means. Indeed, John Houston, who should have an O in his name. Really fucked up, uh, but yes, you John wanna, Houston. You want John Houston? No, John, okay, all right, buddy. No, just Houston, John Huston. Anyway, uh, this is based on Maxwell Anderson's 1939 stage play of the same name. Uh, it stars Humphrey Bogart as Army veteran Frank McLeod, who is traveling to Key Largo, Florida, uh, to visit the family of a man who served and uh, died under him um, in the Italian campaign in World War II. The family includes uh, the man's widow, uh, Nora Temple, played by Lauren McCall, uh, and her stepfather, James Temple, played by Lionel Barrymore. Uh, The two own a hotel called the Hotel Largo, where a number of strange guests are staying that turn out to be associates of the notorious gangster Johnny Rocco, played here uh, very wonderfully uh, by the god himself, Edward G. Robinson. Um, There's also a group of uh, Native Americans, specifically Seminoles, uh, two of which are wanted by the police, uh, who are friendly with the temples and seek to use the hotel as a shelter as a large uh, storm or hurricane uh, approaches. Um, The kind of the the two main ones here uh, are Jay Silverheels and Rod Redwing appear in uncredited roles uh, as John and Tom Osceola, uh, respectively. Um, Rocco and his brothers, sorry, gang, uh, take everyone at the hotel hostage as Rocco has been exiled to Cuba and is waiting for his contacts in Miami to get in touch uh, regarding an illicit deal. As the storm goes outside, tensions inside the hotel grow as well as things uh, reach their breaking point. I think lastly, uh, this film is also uh, also in this film is, is Claire Trevor as Gay Dawn. Uh, who is Rocco's, um, actually, here's quiz time. Uh, Wikipedia calls her, uh, uh, in the plot summary, Rocco's former mall. Does anybody know M-O-L-L? Does anybody know that word? I thought it was just like 20s, 30s slang for like, a, I don't know, your, your side piece sort of thing. It's it's like specifically a gangster's girlfriend. Uh, like, so, <laughs> you know. 
<laughs> yeah, like like a gangster, like ah, yeah, yeah. Side side piece kind of is is the I think the vibe here. Um, she won the Academy Award actually for uh, best supporting actress for this film. Um, well deserved in my opinion. It was kind of a pivotal scene. Um, but yes, this this film is is generally considered kind of a, a classic uh, in noir. It is uh, part of the Trilon series on I believe uh, Florida Noir is the title of the series. Um, so yeah, excited to talk about this one, Jason. What were your thoughts? I am also excited to talk about this one. Uh, it is not one that I had seen before. So um, I, I guess, uh, you know, despite having seen a good few Mogi movies and a good few Lauren Bacall movies, which hard eyes emoji, uh, it's nice to see, I guess, that formally and in writing the um, stakes rise throughout the course of this movie, like Aaron, like Aaron just, you know, uh, laid out. It's very um, sort of like plot heavy. It, the story kind of takes place within more or less within the bounds of one, uh, you know, boarding house, um, one hotel. Uh, I was really glad that there weren't any flashbacks. It was really like the story is ripe for those between, you know, the story being revolving roughly around to um, like the former lives of people uh, throughout the movie. And I think that fed thematically because there are no flashbacks. I think some of the writing choices tell me that there was, that was maybe a um, metatextual choice to not have flashbacks, not, you know, have the the whole of the story take place in the course of this one evening in one place, uh, which was, I think really good at ratcheting up tension and making it feel much more immediate than like, you know, a broader story or a broader quote unquote world to have built here. Uh, it was a, you know, what I feel was an intentional choice and a good one for the story. Um, but I guess a lot of this time, I think we're probably going to spend talking about that scene that Aaron was talking about where uh, Gay sings um, the song that she sings. It's sort of about her lover uh, not being the man that she thought he was. Um, It's kind of, to me, emblematic of like the realizations people have about each other and themselves over the course of this night, uh, you know, amid a hurricane in the Florida Keys, Um, you know, the between all the different parties that are at play here uh, and we'll probably talk a little bit as well about the native American um, plot element, I guess, which is the probably the most generous term you can give to the depiction of native Americans in this movie is that unfortunately they are sort of relegated as a, um, you know, humanizing element. Uh, But the, you know, just thematically that scene where she is singing and forced to sing and forced to perform in that moment uh, held a lot of weight, had a lot of water. I don't want to like, you know, give the whole conversation right now because there's more to go through. But um, just suffice to say, I think that'll be a rich vein for us to talk about. Um, I do not think I like the way that this movie ends, which again, we'll probably try to segue to at some point. I do think uh, I plant my flag firmly in uh, in the land of Bogey should have died out on that boat. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess I guess that's sort of my scattered thoughts. I, I really did enjoy this movie. It's um, uh, it's, you know, classically it's a good way to kick off this series, I guess. And really strange to think that we're going to get a lot more, I guess, left field movies. I know Aaron's specifically excited about one of these in particular, um, out of this series at the trial on. Uh, and this is a really great way, I think to establish the vibe. Um, but I am going to, uh, I'm supposed to meet Harry, um, out by the pier, uh, in, at midnight. I'm not exactly sure if he's going to show up. He's been giving me all sorts of like the runaround once I get on the phone, but, uh, I think I've got him on the line. If he wants to, Harry, are, are you going to meet me out there? I got the goods right here, man. Don't don't even worry about it. Just come on by. Don't you know you don't, don't need your guys. Screw me on this one. Don't Hello. screw me on this one, Mackin. Uh, yeah. So I've seen this movie before at the Trilon. Actually, shoutouts. Um, it was the first movie in the five movie run of the last Trilon Up All Night. Uh, the theme of which was movies that take place over the course of one uh, day or one night. Um, I I liked it a lot then, and I like it a lot uh, now as well. Um, it's like a lot of John Huston movies. Um, it's it's sort of a mixed bag in that it is much more politically subversive and radical than 
you might expect from a movie of this time in some really good ways. And it's also um, quite regressive and uh, frustrating in, in other ways, much more like you would expect from a movie that was made in the, you know, the 1940s. Um, first of all, I, I think that the, um, the, uh, the politics of this movie taking on the disillusionment of GIs returning to America um, after World War II to find that it is not the country they thought they were fight- fighting for or that the ideals that they sort of um, were, were battle-honed or, or fire-honed um, by uh, combat are not necessarily espoused or were never necessarily true of, um, of America itself, um, that's really brilliant, um, really affecting, especially in 1948. Like that's a wild thing to do. Um, I'm really, really not a fan of the way that this movie treats native Americans. Um, in particular, there is one scene at the end where, um, the, uh, the father character, um, uh, James Temple, Lionel Barrymore, he, he starts to get it. Like he gets really close where he's like, oh yeah, it's, it's actually my fault that the native Americans died. If, if, uh, they hadn't trusted me, they would still be alive. It seems like we can't do anything but harm these people. And then, um, like gay Don hilariously like interrupts him and is like, oh no, it's not your fault. It was, it was all Johnny Rocco. It wasn't the law. It wasn't you. It wasn't the country. It's just that we can't do anything while people like Johnny Rocco are alive. And it's like, oh, like you just like took defeat out of the jaws of victory at the, at the very last minute there and like level all of the problems endemic to America and to colonization and to the sort of whole history that you set up in this movie on like people who cheat the system rather than the system itself. When the rest of the movie had clearly set up that like Johnny Rocco's are endemic to the system itself. And that's a really good um, point. Uh, but outside of that and outside of the, the fact that they misuse native Americans to do that, um, I really like a lot of what this movie is doing. It is a absolutely quintessential Humphrey Bogart role in the like layered, deeply disillusioned, deeply sort of world weary, um, role that only somebody like Bogie could ever pull off. I, I always say that like every single, uh, Bogie performance seems like it was just, um, like, written only for him. So it's wild that this was a stage play. Um, I think it works really well as a stage play too. I don't know. It's, it's a really good movie. I think, I think it just, it, there are some issues that I, um, that I'm interested in discussing. I guess I've already named some of them, but, um, I'm really interested in hearing what everybody else thinks as well, including Cody, who is, uh, coming in out of the rain and giving me a very unconvincing, um, sort of story about how he had to pull over for the hurricane. But I, I know that he's my contact, but Jason's sitting right here. So we, we can't, uh, we can't be open about that. Wait, what's, what's this, what's this business going on? Are you, wait, you're just stopping over, just passing through. Uh, I, you know what? My brain isn't awake enough to like keep that bit going. Um, but very, Hey, very good reference to the movie we're talking about, um, which was Key Largo. Um, uh, for some reason, Bogey's voice has been in my head saying the title of the movie. <laughs> wait, since wait I that watched was Bogey? It. That sounded yeah, like it's not, it's not Robinson. <laughs> yeah. He, he just unconsciously did like, yeah. In the back of his brain, he thought he was doing a bogey. But no, Robinson yeah. came out. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's a massive presence over this podcast and this film. <laughs> yeah, someone we will certainly talk about, I'm sure, and definitely should. Uh, but yeah, I'm stumbling into my thoughts here. Uh, this is my first time seeing Key Largo, uh, assuming Letterbox uh, and the upkeep of my Letterbox profile specifically. Assuming all that is correct, this is my 
eighth bogey movie and my second of the four um, where Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall are kind of paired up. And like between those two and Edward G. Robinson and Lionel Barrymore, who's um, people probably know as Potter from It's a Wonderful Life um, and the aforementioned Claire Trevor. Um, there was like a lot of great dynamic on-screen energy that I felt myself latching onto. Um, I wasn't always enthralled by like the you know we're talking about the sort of limited setting and the the kind of like hard-boiled dialogue of it all um not all of that kind of sold me um i don't know if it's like a sensibility thing or what um but some of that was kind of hit or miss and granted i i I think a lot of uh like my initial thoughts that i wrote down were actually like you know I, i was watching the movie and i was like okay these are kind of my takeaways i've warmed up to this movie just a little bit um it may may have been me watching this later at night and like it being like Oh wow, they're they're it looks really warm where they are, and the air seems very salty, and I just want to uh, go to sleep. Um, so like some of that energy, but like I, I think I'm I'm beginning to see this film in a new light, even just like basking on it for a couple days. Um, I didn't realize until after watching that it was based on a play. I think in retrospect that makes uh, a ton of sense, and like in general that sort of vibes with uh, I, I think with my general cinematic sensibilities pretty well. That you know I, I've always been a sucker for a movie that's fiery and overacted um and you know leans heavily on fast biting dialogue which this movie definitely has shout outs to edward g robinson for reading uh, a lot of that dialogue um and i i think the text uh, of this movie is is pretty fascinating um and just you know on paper like this is uh, a, a big win you know we're examining progression of power structures and you know aging sort of one man empires um and i think re- past couple days just as i've been thinking about this movie i've also uh, been trying to look at like adopting a lens of, you know, these, these people are pondering who they used to be. And maybe that's not to like immediately counter Jason, but like the ending when the sort of last lines of the movie are like Frankie's coming back to us, you know, like re- recapturing those bits of ourselves. Um, I, I think is like a, a light thematic through line that, that really sang for me, um, which, uh, you know, which was nice. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, a lot of things I didn't like that kind of match what the fellas have talked about so far. The, you know, the role Native Americans play in this movie sucks, obviously. Um, Lauren Bacall, it would have been nice if she got to say more lines, um, but we still simp, obviously. Uh, and yeah, I don't know. I I, I think ultimately I like this movie. Um, I know I've, I'm saying a lot of not great things, but this is also like, to use very me terminology, this is certainly a high floor situation where like, if you have these people in your movie, uh, it can only be so bad. Um, uh, you know, the, a lot of legends kind of make up this cast, uh, close-ups. Uh, I, I've been thinking about a lot of close-ups from this movie, close-ups that otherwise would have been unmemorable. Instead, you know, if you have Edward G. Robinson, Lauren Bacall, bogey in the frame, all of a sudden they're like amazing shot choices because they can act the fuck out of anything they're in. Um, uh, talked about the good environmental texture, the the warmness, uh, you know, the heat. Everybody's fanning themselves. Everybody's sweaty as hell. Um, See, so yeah, I don't know. I I don't know if the pot never really erupted in the ways that I wanted to from uh, for my own liking and viewing experience. But it was still, I, I think, a decent long slow simmer. Um, Toots said, "Fuck cops," and he's right. Uh, Tbh. Um, but in any case, I I think now. We gotta. We, we should look for. I don't know. I don't know where Aaron's at. I know we need his takes. Uh, he might actually still be in his hotel room, uh, basking in the bathtub like a, a fucking king. So I guess you know we can wait until he he finishes up. Uh, Aaron, whenever you're ready. Yeah, I'm just standing up out of this bathtub, just nude body, just shown almost to the camera. Uh, and who's that coming in the door? It's the audience to hear my takes on this film. Uh, 
usually I don't run with the bits you guys do, and this is this is reminding me why. But uh, I'm happy to talk about this one. Uh, I don't think we've talked about a Humphrey Bogart film in the podcast. Have we done that? Can someone correct me? Did someone mention one that I did, misheard it earlier? I don't think we have. N- no, no. What's coming to mind is the fact that Sierra Madre was the first Trilon movie I ever saw. So sure. that's a, otherwise, yeah, no. that's a good one. Um, so yes, I'm, I'm happy to talk, I guess about a Bogart film that feels like kind of a, a, a blind spot, at least as far as this podcast goes. So great to get one, uh, checked off. I think Lauren McCall is great in this film. I'm always, always happy to watch a movie with the man, Edward G. Robinson in it. This is an especially, uh, meaty performance. Um, fun fact, obviously, uh, Bogart and McCall were together a number of, I think four movies, uh, they were married, um, uh, Bogart and Edward G. Robinson were also in a number of movies, uh, five movies together. And they were um, sorry, correct? I believe they were. They were. Yes, they were also married uh, as well. Surprising given the time, uh, but but yes, they were. I, sorry if this is a Cody's Noties bit, but they were in five movies, uh, which are uh, Bullets or Ballots, Kid Galahad, Brother Orchid, and Key Largo. And the fifth one. Does anybody know the name of the fifth one? No, uh, no, it is it is uh, the amazing Doctor Clitterhouse. What? Oh, yeah. No. Yeah. Can we run that so back next, one more time? Uh, it is the amazing Doctor Clitterhouse. Wow. Yeah. yeah I'm just I'm naming off. Look, I um, want to just personally object to you saying yeah. that again. You can you can edit that out if you want. Um, I, I I like this movie a lot. I think uh, along with everybody else, I did have some issues with it, but I do think there's kind of a lot of meat on these bones, at least uh, to pick at over the course of an episode. Um, during the uh, episode on the sacrifice, uh, the Tarkovsky film, I mentioned that there were a, a few classic themes that I love directors to tackle. Um, you know, the idea of characters kind of mirroring each other. As we saw uh, another one of his films, and kind of. Uh, being split. I like that. Uh, I like uh, uh, when there's a coming apocalypse that is haunting a main character. Uh, I also mentioned that that I love rising temperatures, right, and hot weather signaling oppression and, and kind of various sources of tension. This kind of combines both of these in which this hurricane that is coming into Key Largo is like it, it once like humid and hot and also is is going to potentially destroy this entire hotel and sweep these people away. Uh, uh, into the ocean. Um, I, I really loved that aspect of things getting worse and worse throughout the movie. Um, I liked how uh, th- this film was shot on a Warner Brothers set, except for a, a various uh, kind of small scene at the beginning. Um, but it, it feels very physical. Uh, you know, there's trees that crash through the windows and kind of impact uh, the room that a lot of these people are in for the bulk of the film. Um, I really like that aspect. I love the stage play aspect. One movie that I think I'm maybe alone, a, a very a liking quite a bit, uh, is Hateful Eight. That's another movie that that kind of does a lot of similar things. I just love movies. One of my favorite things about movies that are adapted from plays, or, or at least feel very play like or theatrical like classic theatrical in that manner is I like when there's a very limited space and you allow the characters to kind of work off of it and work off of each other in this confined setting. Um, so I really liked all of that. I do agree with, uh, Harry's, um, kind of criticisms of the film film's use of native Americans. Um, I think that it is maybe well-intentioned, but not necessarily pulled off very well. Yeah. The the final scene, I actually, it's, it's, it's really a bummer. The, the final scene that kind of talks about the native Americans where Sheriff Wade is talking to Mr. Temple and, and gay is in there. Um, that scene is like bad enough as it is, but I think the way that it's like handled is, is kind of done even worse. Um, where, 
you know, if, if gay just said, uh, you know, no, it wasn't you it was, it, it was just, just old Johnny Rocco. Maybe I wouldn't have as much of a problem with it. That's her character's perspective, whatever. But the, the way that that scene is even edited, um, it, yeah. it, it, you know, they're having a conversation and then as she says it, it cuts to just like a close up of her face. And she's like speaking, maybe not quite to the camera, but very close. And it it's feels like, like very authoritative. Like fully a Barton think we're going to talk to the audience yes. in a long moment. Yeah. Um, which is striking because there's there's scenes earlier in the film that the same thing happens, specifically the scene where you learn that the Osceolas were both killed by the, the sheriff um, and you see Humphrey Bogart's character kind of stare into the camera. I feel like that's a very powerful scene. Very good scene. Um, yeah. Yes. Uh, and then this just is uh, a bummer, man. Um, so, yeah, I hated I hated that. And I feel like if you cut off that last line, I think that scene is great and delivers what I would say is maybe the right message uh, about what goes on in this film. Um, but, uh, you know, so, uh, a flawed film, certainly, uh, a lot of that's due to its age. A lot of that is maybe just due to the writing. Uh, but I, I do think it was kind of overall very, very good. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to talk about it and maybe do Edward G. Robinson accents with all of you guys. Yeah. Um, I, sorry to take it from you right away here, Jason, but, um, Aaron mentioned the setting and I think that's super important to this movie. And so I kind of wanted to jump right into that, um, and use my favorite terrible vocab word as a, you know, former undergraduate English major, but I really love Key Largo as a liminal space, right? In this movie, like it's, it's on the shore. It's barely part of America. They, they go to Cuba at one point. So it's like, it's right on the edge of America. And I really love the symbolism of Edward G. Robinson's character coming from further inland, Johnny Rocco, right? And like the idea that, that he is America and that like, all of mainland America is like him, right? And like, you can't escape from it even when you're out here. It's like our, our boy had barely come back from overseas, right? Like here he is like on the shoreline of America, basically. And all of this is happening to him again, right? Like they even, they um, they directly quote uh, the uh, um, 1942 address that um, Roosevelt gave about, um, what is the exact line? It's like, um, we didn't... Uh, we didn't make this sacrifice of human labor and human lives so that we could return to the world that we had before the la- or after the last world war, which is like so powerful and so moving and such a great thing to write about a character. And I love the idea that it's like, you're barely back and it's already, it's already happening again. You know what I mean? It's like the, the stakes are so well established by this specific um, place and this specific time. And especially the hurricane, that's like, this is an existential threat, right? Like, like we're wondering if it's even possible to ever have attained or if it's worth fighting for this idea that is so clearly not going to happen. So like, I guess what I'm saying is I'm, I'm sympathetic of Jason and, and your point that you thought Humphrey Bogart should have died. That would have been a very different, very dark ending. I don't know that I agree with you because I think that the whole sort of idea of this movie is, is very like Casablanca in the sense that like Cody had mentioned, like, um, Frank is, is coming back to them. He's, he's learning that um, he can still fight for what he believes in and that we sort of have this obligation to build a better world. But like, it is, it is wild and fascinating how, um, how deeply disillusioned this movie is and how true it feels that like, really like we are threatened, right? It's almost like the, the movie is suggesting almost like Casablanca in that way that like the real war begins now. You know, which again, like in 1948 is like a really awesome point to make, I think. And I think that the, the setting in particular really plays into that in a way that really, really hits for me. But I'm, I'm interested in what everybody else thinks, too. 
Well, this is maybe a bit of a small point, so maybe we can kind of back and forth a bit here. But I, I do agree with um, – I think I was similarly slightly surprised at, at the, the, I guess, deeper critiques of the, the kind of the content that this film handles than, than I would expect uh, from the movie. Yeah. Um, I think that, that if we had to really like – I think there's like a, a kind of death of the author esque reading you could do with this film, where this this movie is kind of correct, correct in a manner uh, that maybe it doesn't intend, right? Where um, the the comparison of you know the Rocco, you know this American gangster who's kind of exiled and, and is, is coming back, um, I think is the comparison of that character to the Nazis that doesn't really work for me um, for, for the reason that that the movie very purposefully it seems uh places that character as kind of external to the american government um and america as a whole right where i do think but knowing like the history of like the mafia and the mob specifically in like the early 20 like a mid 20th century um the government actually worked with the mafia and the mob quite a bit like they did that very purposefully um and i think there there is a way that you could kind of galaxy brain it and kind of use that to explain away the, the kind of the flaws of this film. Uh, but the film kind of purposefully never touches on that. Maybe that's too forward thinking of a thing for 1948, but I don't, I don't think so. Right. Like the mob was around for decades at that point. I think people generally knew that the government was working with the mafia and the mob in order to kind of take down other people they thought were kind of larger threats. Um, and so it feels like a cop out of the film. I don't know, Harry, is that, is that correct? No, I mean, I don't, I don't totally disagree with you. And I, I think that um, the way that they very consciously separate um uh, Rocco from America itself is is somewhat cowardly for sure. I will say though that like there it it complicates it at 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 least two different points, right? Because like first of all, they bring up prohibition a bunch, which like a prohibition is what gave organized crime its power, and it was sort of facilitated by the uh, American government, kind of in part to do that, as we found out, right? And so um, that's one example of, of politicians working with sort of crime to fix systems. Um, and then there's also like the fact that Rocco does point out that he um, is in charge of and made careers for politicians. Um, they do, however, like say that those politicians then turned on him, which is another sort of like complicated separation. So like, I would say that I agree with you. Like, I think this movie works much better if Rocco reads as endemic of the American culture and sort of like experiment in the first place, right? Like it's like, oh, Rocco came out of this American dream that you were supposedly fighting for. And it's like, actually, like what we have to do now is we have to fight for the world we thought we had, not necessarily the world we did have because, and and the fact that we never really had that world doesn't mean it's not worth fighting for, right? Like that all works super well. What the movie ends up trying to look like it's doing is saying something like, we did have that world. It's just that there were people who were like manipulating it and we can remove those people or those people are worth fighting yes. against. And so like that is a much weaker reading, right? Like that is that is a much less interesting thing to do than saying like actually America is fundamentally flawed and fundamentally sort of unworthy of the sacrifices that these people made. However, what those people were doing when they were making those sacrifices is still worthwhile. Like the ideal that people like Frank were fighting for is still worth it, even though it wasn't actually represented by the world that they were fighting for at the time. Right. Yeah. I get the, like the, 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 the point about like ordinary men having to stand up against kind of the evils of the world and in order to kind of, you know, fix, fix home as as well as like going abroad and fixing it. Like, okay, I'll, I'll, I guess I'll take that point uh, in the way that it's intended. But the, 
the way that this movie handles uh, Rocco is that I guess the message I'm getting is that the way that you kind of save America is standing up to like the mafia or the, not the mafia, but like the mob. Right. Um, And it, it feels a little silly. Like it, it just, it, it goes to such efforts to kind of distance Rocco from, um, I don't know. It feels like it's so close to getting that, um, but it, it doesn't, which is it's very, uh, it's very much uh, like it encapsulates that scene that you mentioned, right? Where it's like they almost get there. They're on like the 90 yard line and they're, they're like, no, actually, like we, there's like a bait and switch where it's like we thought that Rocco symbolized sort of America and the true sort of like sense of unfettered capitalism and the way that that creates cheaters. And then it's like, no, actually, like he represented this sort of like alien Right. He even says at one point, like, oh, they're casting. He says he's an alien. Yeah. Right. I, but even like reading, it's, it's, it's like even more of a bummer because even reading just the, the text as it is, um, I think that the, the handling of the, the situation between Sheriff Wade and the Osceola's, like, okay, Sheriff Wade does, I think, uh, you know, he's, he's obviously predisposed to dislike these Native Americans, but like he sees this dead body and he goes, ah, it's obviously these people that are wanted by the police. Um, I know this is like a very like modern take on like, you know, police violence and, and whatnot, but like the fact that he just shoots them when they're fleeing instead of attempting to in any way apprehend them, even if he did think that like is still very bad, right? That is, I would say a, a bad use of, of police force, um, but the film even doesn't kind of investigate that, right? It says, okay, he he believed that they were the bad guys. He shot and killed them. Oh, that's a bummer, I guess, because of Rocco. Uh, where it's like, even the situation as it is, is like, no, that, that's actually still pretty fucked up, uh, even if you're going to hand wave that. I don't know. Yeah, no, I think everybody's getting, like, skirting around how I generally feel about, like, and this is maybe tying it to the ending a little bit too soon, is like that threat of disillusionment that we've been talking about that, you know, Frank feels upon coming back to his country and finding the, you know, the criminal element still a extant. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know that he ever comes around to that realization that Harry's talking about, uh, where it's like, he, he recognizes, you know, uh, uh, that there's, I guess like, like he never connects, uh, those pieces that Aaron was talking about. Um, you know, the, the mafia to American empire and the systems that birth people like Rocco and perpetuate, uh, systems of violence against, you know, uh, against, you know, fellow countrymen sort of thing. I don't think that he ever comes to that realization. And that's sort of why I wanted him to die at the end. <laughs> I think like, like you said, he's sort of just like, he's alienized. Sorry. R- Rocco is alienized. He's, uh, cast as like an element outside the system of, you know, the American way sort of thing. And the American way, in my estimation does like triumph at the end of this movie because Frank, it, you know, sort of out outwits him, you know, the, he's, he's a better, just a better soldier, I guess, than Rocco was. And he's able to outsmart him. And, uh, though he's coming back and though there's like a, a mess, like a thread of hope there, I don't think that that jives with what I was seeing throughout the rest of the movie. It felt very quickly left turn, unless they're like signposts that I just totally missed throughout the movie. Um, I, wanted and expected it to die excuse me to end with frank dead somewhere in the keys uh you know off the coast of cuba or wherever he was when he when he first when he you know dispatched the rest of the crew um i don't know if there's something that i was totally missing there or if there's just a conversation that i'm not tapped into but it did not sit right with me that he you know lives through the end that he you know saves basically saves the family saves the girl you know oh unfortunately a bunch of seminole indians died uh from a misunderstanding uh too bad but then we like have our happy ending, I guess. 
Um, so I think that one of the pivotal things is, did you think that when Frank was saying all of the things that he was saying about um, the gangster and a, about um, Johnny Rocco, that he was only sort of hyping up Johnny Rocco? Because I think that there's room to read that. But in my mind, he actually believed a lot of what he was saying about how like it's not worth fighting against people because the system is rigged and like it's not worth dying over one less Johnny Rocco because... Yeah. And so like, this is a, to me, um, Frank's story in this is about a process of overcoming the disillusionment, like finding out that what he was fighting for wasn't what he was fighting, what he thought he was fighting for, or um, more to the point that he hasn't won yet. Like he thought he, he thought he went off to fight this war against people like Johnny Rocco, which again, like unclear if that's true or not. Right. But and then he came back to America and he found out that nothing had changed, right? That that the system was still just as rigged, um, that people were still, I mean, uh, American Indians were still marginalized and kept away from uh, like what's rightfully theirs and uh, people still rule with guns and violence. And so I think that the beginning of this movie is about a guy who is trying to get away from the world because he doesn't believe in it anymore. And the arc is about him coming to believe in the world again, or more particularly to believe in the set of virtues that he had when he thought that they were going to pay off, even though they didn't pay off and still maybe won't pay off. Right. Like it's a, it's a sort of a coming of age story of his to, to sort of like um, it's, it's like an American GI coming to reaffirm the values that he uh, taught himself in combat, if not necessarily the ones that he thought there were or were represented. So like, I think that's why it, it does work for me. Um, but I, I will say that like, it would be an interesting and subversive thing. If like this symbolic person of like the person who is still going to fight back, if we lost him, that might've made a better, like a stronger point for the idea that like, we have to be doing more. Right. And that would be interesting. But, um, but I think I understand why they, they preserve him at the end. I maybe Jason can kind of uh, kind of jump in with what he thought, but I definitely I definitely thought he was going to die. That, that Frank at the end of the film was going to die. I, I figure he yeah. was going to like purposely crash the boat or something in order to like take everybody out. You know what I mean? I, are you yeah. saying that you thought that he was going to fail in his you know mission to stop Rocco, or that he would kind of sacrifice oh. himself similar to? Yeah, well, I thought similar yeah. to, to James. I think the 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 yeah. friend yeah. from the war. Yeah. Yeah, I thought uh, James. There's a whole other thing with James, uh, but the I, I thought that you know just formally by the end, I thought you know they were setting up the pieces of lost adrift, um, you know, running out of gas, dead all sort of thing. Just formally, like watching the movie, I felt convinced that Frank was going to die out there. He had said his goodbyes and everything. Um, but even thematically, even along with that, like I thought that you know his unwavering faith in you know the american way and the ideals that he held held you know going into war despite um you know being disillusioned uh, at his coming back i i thought that that was like re- like his confrontations with rocco were rekindling that spirit and sort of like again you know his his one man crusade against this uh you know small group of organized mobsters was going to not pay off in that way because he is only backed by, you know, the uh, virtue of the American spirit, you know, and I, maybe I'm attaching too much of Frank's motivation to like what I'm calling the American way. And the idea that, you know, uh, whatever imperialist tendencies and uh, you know, 
um, well, basically, yeah, whatever uh, imperialist tendencies the country has still worth, you know, protecting, still worth defending. I might be associating too closely Frank's motivations with that, um, because as Harry said, he's, you know, he sort of lost that uh, in ways he, he lost that um, uh, myth in his head over the course of time and over the course of the war. And, you know, when he comes back, it's the inflection point that he realizes things aren't, you know, things haven't changed. I think that I think that what I saw in that ending was no, his faith in the American way in the you know imperialist machine was was founded. Like originally, the reason that he went to war uh, was founded, and like and we did affect change, and there was something to change there. And I think that that maybe was a little bit too hopeful for me um, in the respect that like he's taking out this criminal element, uh, and he gets to like save the day. He gets to like head back a renewed faith and a renewed vigor in this virtuous mission. I guess virtuous mission uh yeah no i mean i don't disagree with you especially because like you're looking at it in sort of like a a very broad sense and in the very broad sense like you're absolutely right right like when you see humphrey bogart he's the movie star he's on the cover of the like i can equivocate about whether or not humphrey bogart the movie star character's actual motivations maybe line up with his symbolic presence but that symbolic presence is still almost speaks louder than words, right? Like there's, there's a sense in which like at the end of this movie, even if we think that actually like Humphrey Bogart's character is a, is a complicated man with, with a lot of disillusionment about the American way and maybe doesn't actually represent the war hero the way we thought that he did, you know, everybody still calls him soldier. Everybody still calls him the war hero. There's a whole thing that you briefly alluded to um, with James where like, I thought that the whole thing was going to be that James was the war hero and like, he's the one who died and this is who we've got, right? Like this is who's Mm -hmm. left. And like, that would be a really cool thing, a cool foil between him and uh, Nora and Frank, right? Where it's like, Frank is sort of like the real version, the version of uh, James that comes home because like that, that man, the ideal man, the real man is gone, right? Like he, he perished along with like that, but that's not really what happens, right? Because then there's that turn where it turns out that no, like Frank was the guy on the hill. He was the war hero all along. And it becomes about how Frank is a war hero and has to rediscover that. So like, I think you're, you're not wrong, right? Like this movie ends up back at a place of affirmation, just like Aaron said, where it's like the cop isn't the bad guy here, even though he shot unarmed people who were fleeing from him. He's not the bad guy, even though he uh, is coming here to track down these Native Americans in the first place for uh, like pretty suspect reasons, right? Even though he he immediately like thinks that they were the culprits, and like it's so you're 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 not wrong. I guess is what I'm saying is that like this is definitely a 1948 movie. I just think that like there's a lot of interesting almost deconstructive nuance to be found in the way that Rocco is representative of this thing that. Uh, that Humphrey Bogart's character, Frank, is so disillusioned by, right? Like there's something, there's a really excellent exchange happening there. And like the disillusionment that that speaks to, I, you know, I, I don't think that the movie ties it explicitly to the powers that be, the sort of like okay. the system that is the way it should. But I, <laughs> almost like Aaron said, I want it to, right? Like, because it works, it's there. It just mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. doesn't quite make it. And so I'm, I don't totally disagree with you, I guess is what I'm saying. Uh, much to consider. Um, a, a few quick things, uh, and at, at risk of 
turning this into another like uh, great ding debate like we had on the Say Anything episode with regards to, <laughs> to this ending. Um, I guess I, I'm sort of waffling a bit and I actually maybe see myself swayed a little bit. Uh, Jason, what you said actually really kind of resonated with me in part because the whole, um, I, I'll just call it like uh, Frank's like, uh, not necessarily need for self-preservation, but the whole like, you know, I'm not going to sacrifice myself to stop one Johnny Rocco like that coming up unless I uh, unless I missed a, a sign on on the road at some point like that was mostly that seemed to have been brought up basically in the moment of conflict when he was in front of Johnny Rocco and that mm-hmm. the introduction the introduction of that felt like really clunky to me. It didn't sit quite right. And, and so I guess by the end I sort of accepted, well, okay, there's an element like since that's how he, since that's part of him, since it, and since this is a 1948 movie, he will find a way to like survive by the end, especially since he, you know, it's a Bogart and Bacall movie. Like he's got a female opposite, like that's, that's how it'll end. But I, I don't know. I think thinking, uh, you know, hypothetically, maybe I would have felt more personal fulfillment with, you know, that with it ending on that sort of like somber, maybe like a weirdly somber, but truthful note, uh, especially just, you know, for the time maybe. Um, but yeah, I don't know, regardless. And, and I guess to, to circle, uh, take a long way back, uh, just a, a footnote for Harry's liminal spaces, I guess, checking my own box, uh, of like character or rather settings or environments as like, characters, oh. Um, I don't have a lot to say about it. I mean, Harry, uh, characterized it pretty well. Um, but I mean, and this is sort of a different energy, right? Cause it's, it's key Largo and, or the hotel. Um, like I said, there's like a lot of texture going into this, the storm outside, um, being the, the sort of, um, hyper, um, metaphor, you know, changing of the tides, there's a storm brewing, and then there's, uh, an intersection of all these people, um, in, in one place. Uh, I think of Dragon Inn in, in part because it's a poster that's on my wall right now and I can see it. Um, definitely at one, at a couple points thought of bad times at the El Royale. Um, I, hmm. <laughs> interesting. Okay. Okay. Uh, so we've opened, a, we've opened a very specific door not, to a very specific not, place. Are we ready to go there? Uh, we're not. I, <laughs> <laughs> We're probably not. Um, I wanted to, I, and I knew I'd get those reactions and, and I thought that would be fun. Um, also, I, I, and circling way, way back, um, Aaron, if you want a, uh, a, like, sort of like storm or apocalyptic event movie being like super representative of characters' journey and, and things like that, um, Melancholia, buddy. Uh, throw that on, on your watch list. If <laughs> Harry it's not and Jason there. just uh, like pounding their fists, like, I thought he was talking about take shelter. Uh, yeah uh, also take shelter wow take shelter for sure Holy i, shit, I may have mentioned this on the pod before but my my mother uh I, my, my family's not too big of like a movie family you know we, we grew up like renting movies from the store or whatever and watching them but they don't i don't think they see like too many movies uh they're in they my parents live in australia so it's often like what can they get on streaming oh it's a bunch of kind of random crap um but like once a year my mother will send me an email not she won't do this on purpose, but she'll send me like one email a year. We're like, I just saw the movie of the year. Uh, you need to see that. And it's always like a movie that just like barely got nominated for best picture. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like never, oh, sure. not that those like the best or whatever, but it's like, it's yeah, never like the most watch, critically acclaimed. Drag her. Uh, <laughs> no, look, she's great. But like uh winter's bone was one, one year and one year it was melancholia where she was like, uh, the, the search for the best picture is done. 
it's melancholia and it's like okay all right so i've been i have been meaning to see that she loves that movie uh and one day i will get to it but uh let's have her on the put it on the ah no hey but uh put it on my letterbox wish list i just wanted to say like uh and again i don't know necessarily that i that i believe in defending this movie um at this to this extent but like I wonder how triumphant the ending really is, right? Like, I actually kind of like it as a down, like, not a, I mean, obviously it is triumphant. The music swells, our our boy lives, he's coming home, et cetera. But, like, I don't know. He just, like, he's shot. He, he's, like, limping back home uh, to this this place to, to reunite with his friend's uh, wife, widow, and uh, his dad. And, like, he had just killed a bunch of people uh and he did it through sort of like trickery and like um you know moving fast it's like there was not it was a pretty ignoble fight and i think a pretty like understated fight um on purpose right like this was not this was not like an action movie right like this was edward g robinson getting shot in the back because humphrey bogart was hiding on the roof of the boat you know and so like i kind of i kind of dug that i kind of dug that it was like the fight itself is not is not um is not beautiful it's not like triumphant it's not like uh particularly even sort of like like masculine or heroic right it's it's just sort of like this this like sort of dirty ugly thing that you have to do and like i kind of like the fact that like also our hero didn't really even have a choice like obviously his arc is about finding a reason to fight again and finding something to fight for again and believing that the fight is worth it but like he mostly does it to survive, right? Like he's going out on that boat and they're going to kill him. And like, it's, it's either he beats these people or he dies. And so like, I kind of like that too. I kind of like that. It was like, it's not really about like making this, this like virtuous choice to like head once more onto the breach. Uh, like it is in Casablanca, which I hate to keep bringing up, but like, it's more like, well, like we're all still here. And like, we still have to do this. You know what I mean? And I kind of liked that aspect of it, especially the fact that like he does get shot. He does have to like jump up on the roof of the boat. He has this, like this very sort of pathetic or Edward G. Robinson has this very pathetic sort of like moment of begging that doesn't come to anything for him. All of that really worked for me, I guess. I I think that's super fair. Um, and it, it gets into the thing that I realize I'm wrestling with now where, um, and we've talked about it where like the uh, maybe sort of the, the middle act or, you know, the, the time, the t- time that they spent together in this hotel, they're, they're setting the pins up, but they're not necessarily knocking them down. If you know what I mean? And like, in a lot of ways, the, like the ending feels like an ending to a different movie almost. And like, like, I, I don't know. I, I think my kind of where, like, I, I latched onto that ending and was maybe like annoyed at the fact that they were sort of bowling in the middle of the movie, whereas at the end they're, you know, playing basketball. And like, that's just like the note I felt like that, uh, that we were left with and that I felt myself latching up. But like, I don't know. Maybe, I, maybe I have that swapped and maybe I just need to like do my own sort of like, uh, mental, gymnastics i'm referencing way too many sports at once um but like i i don't know i i think I, i'm in a certain 
bowling's fine. I just for this specific metaphor, I mean, you can't top basketball. But any anyway, that's yeah. I don't know. That's wait. What? What? Go, go. Harry, you want to drop your worst your worst take ever on this podcast for everybody to hear about bowling? (laughs) Fans of bowling out there. What bowling the is great. I like everybody bowling. enjoys bowling. Everybody great. likes that. Every you just sit around, you eat yeah. food, you drink beer, and you hang out with people. Most of the time, you don't even got to stand up. You're just sitting in a chair. It's great. You can do that without like, being in the shittiest building ever made or playing the shittiest sport. You wear the coolest shoes. What more do you want, Harry? Oh yeah, They're the best looking shoes from some some other dude who I've never met who wore these shoes in nineteen. The smell. It's the history of many different feet. You got to think about it that way. I don't think about it this way. I was going to defend, but I I think I'm defending just like to the side of Aaron, like putting a, a bit of distance. You'd like to parallel me. maybe. Yes. 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 I do not need to be concurrent, just parallel. Um, I think uh, just to s- summarize my, my feeling about the ending, I think that the ending, the way that Harry said, like he's on his way back triumphant, but recognizing there's work to be done. And like, we know what work needs to be done. I think, and maybe it was just the movie lulling me into this with its handsome performances and really captivating cinematography. I think that the ending is saying the work is done. Like we took care I, of the bad guys. I agree with that. What's that? Oh, I just don't agree with that. I don't think. It, I, and I think it is just like the way that I perceived it and the way that you perceived it. Like I, I don't, I know that not everybody's going to be as happy uh, or as like fulfilled by it as like, I, I guess the fact that it wanted, that I thought it wanted me to be fulfilled by that, satisfied by that is the thing that sort of turned me off from maybe agreeing or liking the ending. Um, but that's just, you know, synthesis of every other point I've tried to make earlier in the podcast. So not really like a new thought, um, just a cap that sort of leverages one, something that was said earlier. Uh, Harry. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and I'm going to play devil's advocate or Jason's advocate, I guess, against my own point here, which is that like, I think that, that your, your reading is supported by the movie's treatment of Native Americans and the, uh, the final scene where she talks about how Rocco was the, the sort of like source of all evil, right? It's like, it textually, this is a movie about characters who fail, right? Like, and, and have failed over and over again, right? Like in a, in a major sense and in sort of like a very harsh sense, right? Because like, I don't want to disparage this, but like Frank McCloud kind of failed in the sense that like he went to war thinking he was fighting for a better future. And then he came back having won the war without having won the better future he thought he was fighting for uh, in, a, in a major sense. At least that's how he feels about it. Um, meanwhile, like Nora and James, they're out here in Key Largo trying to sort of like facilitate for Native Americans trying to do the right thing, right? Like they, at one point, uh, Nora even says that, oh, James is is like the United States to these Native Americans, which is like a hilariously ironic line that that plays completely like inverse of the way that the movie, I think, wants it to play, which is really funny. Um, but like he does end up being the United States in the sense that like he gets them killed, right? Like, first of all, he can't let them into his shelter, which is not his by right in the first place. It belongs to them. Um, they're running and they're like taken out of their shelter in the first place because they had to escape from a government that was unlawfully sort of like imprisoning them. And they are killed by the police at the end, right? And so like, this is a movie about characters who are trying to make a better world and aren't failing and are wondering if it's worth it anymore to me, right? And like, I think that I would have liked it more, right? If, if they would have been, I think I, I, I don't totally disagree with you. I would have liked a down note where it's like, we failed these Native Americans, right? Like, and uh, what we thought we were doing isn't finished yet. But like, I think that this movie ends up in a place where it's like, 
there is something worth preserving about Frank McLeod's sort of like outlook and Nora's outlook and, and James's outlook, even though it isn't, it hasn't been successful. It's not really the story of American history that we thought it was. Um, and again, like, you know, I, I think that this is ultimately an optimistic movie. And like, I think that especially in 2021, uh, especially in America in 2021, it is completely all right to be disillusioned by and frustrated by any sort of like supposed optimistic movie. Right. But like, I, I don't know. I think that like, particularly a movie made in 1948 that is coming off of the victory of world war two, that is willing to say like, Hey, look, America is still a fucked up, terrible place in a lot of ways. And in specifically in the way that we treat women in the way we treat native Americans and the way in which powerful bullies exploit the system in order to make, uh, you know, in, in order to, to get further than everybody else, because they think they're entitled to it. Those things are still worth fighting against, even though we haven't done like we haven't succeeded. Right. It's like, there's, there's a very powerful point there, I think. Um, like, I, I remember watching this um, a couple of years ago, um, and I believe at this point Trump was still in office, right? And, like, I'm looking at Johnny Rocco, and I'm like, this character is so over the top, but then I had to stop myself from thinking that, right? Because it was like, oh, like, he's not over the top at all. That's just that's just what a dude in America is like. <laughs> that's just what our sitting president was like, right? So, like, there there is something resonant to me about that, I guess. Yeah, and I think it's like fascinating that we've gotten here mostly through the lens of looking at the end of the movie and like sort of what that signals about what came before it. Um so I think great conversation so far. I was going to leave it open to anybody else's like big thoughts, any other pivot points we want to make before we head to final shoutouts, final thoughts and uh in our outro segments. I just I kind of wanted to like I don't have a big uh, takeaway to talk about, but like early on, we talked a lot about the, um, the scene that sort of got, um, Claire Trevor as Gail Dawn, her Academy Award. And like, we talked about, um, Johnny Rocco, Edward G. Robinson and Laura Bacall. And we sort of focused on other things, but like, I want to know a lot more about like what you guys thought of, of those performances and those characters and what, what you thought they like brought to the, the movie. Right. Because like, I think in particular, Gail Dawn and her song, which like at at one point was presumably not ironic, right? When she was singing about like um, a man like him deserves a woman like me, she was singing in a very different context. And I think that like shifting the context so that it becomes a very sad, like ironic song about how, yeah, you're right. Like he is a man like that and he does deserve a woman like you. It's just the opposite of what you meant it in the first place to be uh, is like a really devastating and thematic through line, like Aaron, you had mentioned. And I, I wonder... Um, if, if you think that that works really well, or if you think similarly, there are stumbling points. Uh, well, since I brought it up in the intro, I'll talk a little bit. Um, so to be just to lay it on the level, uh, the song is Moan and Low by Ralph Ranger, song, lyrics by Howard Dietz. Um, and it is, of course, calling back to Gay's former life as a, uh, you know, cabaret songstress, sort of Tin Pan Alley, um, and maybe who she was or, you know, what she was before Rocco. Uh, I think that that, it is sort of like a cipher, sort of like a, uh, I don't know, a, a puzzle piece for understanding a whole lot of what this movie is trying to communicate, at least through, you know, most of the middle act. Um, to me, like, you know, the lyrics, I don't have them in front of me, but the lyrics are sort of like a slow realization, at least in real time, as Gail is being forced to perform them by Rocco in front of everybody, um, just to get a drop of liquor, uh, is call is sort of like a slow realization about what is, and, you know, we, we've sort of 
covered how this movie is a whole lot of it is that slow realization, slow realization about who she's actually, uh, you know, in with and sort of the life that she's found herself in and how she's been, uh, you know, pulled there by various forces. But it's sort of, you know, like, again, there's no positive way to view the, the depiction of Native Americans in this movie, but there is, um, you know, the Osceolas are people who trusted, uh, very Moore's character. I forget his name, daddy, whatever his name is. Um, <laughs> and they came to realize that like, he's not actually a true ally to their cause. Uh, you know, he allowed them to be killed. He, uh, you know, what through happenstance or, you know, accident or mistake or whatever, ultimately he can't be trusted. You know, um, that's like through the through line for, for that party, I guess, in this, if we're splitting up parties, uh, Lauren McCall, um, Nora has to like squeeze and square her perception of her husband. Uh, was that, um, James, uh, her perception George. of James, sorry, James George is the father. I oh, messed that up oh, earlier, boy. but yes. I see. I was just following your lead, man. I gotta be more of a yeah. leader myself. Um, she has to square and squeeze her perception of her husband, her now deceased husband against what Frank tells her about him. Um, and she slowly starts to learn that like, oh, that's not actually true. Like the things that you are telling me about George are things that George told me about you, this hero story about being pinned on a hill and your whole party and your whole, you know, platoon being killed, but you're the holdout. Uh, you know, that's sort of like a new realization she has to have. She's like coming to understand things very differently. It's a catalyst of change. This place. Uh, I don't know this, this, one sequence and i understand now why it was um you know so lauded and why it earned the actress uh an academy award is because it does synthesize a whole lot of i think what the movie is doing outside of it uh you know on the, on the surface it is just one you know a gangster um sort of being controlling and demanding over the woman he sees as property uh but underneath the surface there's a lot more cooking there including like it makes you think a lot about where the story is taking place, you know, this place that's supposed to be like Harry said, uh, at sort of for all intents and purposes for the American empire, the edge of the world, it is sort of like on the borderline. It is a place where people go, um, presumably to like have freedom, have space, be away from things. Uh, and yet, you know, natural disasters are more of a concern there than almost anywhere else that they could be. And they go there to seemingly either leave or have a bad time. Uh, and, you know, that like the, the framing of this song that she's forced to sing is just like, it puts a fine point on that to me, uh, to where they all kind of have to adjust their conceptualizations of each other and of Key Largo, um, as a place, you know, out of the way as people, uh, you know, just passing through, uh, that they all do have like a measure of importance and, you know, the clashing against each other, the pinball game that they're playing, um, you know, the happenstance that brought them all together is very meaningful, very uh, impactful and is like something that they will carry with them. Right. Uh, it's, it almost, you almost get the feeling that, um, gay has been too self-medicated for so long to really like realize the sort of situation that she finds herself in. She has uh, that and, whole arc, right? Right. Like right. right inside that song. Exactly. And that's what I mean is like, there's a whole person, a whole character before this movie, but we see that catalyst of change in that song, you know, that moment I've kind of babbled yeah. on and on and on. Yeah, that's to, like, really well, that's really well it, but, communicated. But that's that's why that segment meant so much to me. Uh, Aaron's hand up, so I'll let you go. Uh, very quick, dumb comments after that. Uh, very smart comment. Uh, I know people talk about her winning the Academy Award for that scene. It is a very good scene, but in my opinion, uh, her best performance in this film was earlier in the film where she does some of the best fake drunk acting I've ever seen in a movie. Uh, her, yeah. her fake drunk when, when Frank first gets to the hotel and she's like clearly had a bunch of beverages, everybody's just sitting at the bar, just sweltering in the heat. Uh, and she like 
the way she speaks, great, great drunk acting. Not like too far in one direction where it's like entirely comical, but not like entirely serious. Great in the middle. And then she she stands up and she goes to like see somebody. Uh, and she like walks out. Great drunk walk. Ten out of ten drunk walk. Uh, maybe some maybe the best drunk performance uh, in a really, trial really, movie. Really was the the so important the crucially important moment of standing up when you're drunk, which is like really extremely when, when hard. Home to roost. Yeah. And you can only see the upper half of her body because she's behind a bar. So just with, I mean, just based on that alone, you got to give her the best supporting yeah. actress. Yeah. Many points of articulation that she's using to indicate like a she's lost her sea legs type moment. And we got any other final thoughts? I just like, I maybe I'm just making my same point again, so I'll, I'll keep it brief. But it's just like, you think about the framing of that song too, right? And about how it's it's about a narrative that you thought was one way but it turned out to be something else. And then you like apply that to Frank's experience and you apply that to like the sort of history of America as it's being encapsulated in this movie. And like, not to grade on a curve again, but like, that's kind of a big thing for a movie in 1948 to do, right. To talk about how like fundamentally America is not what we want it to be or what we thought it was. Right. Especially coming off of arguably the greatest victory of the American sort of belief system in history. Although, you know, like wasn't actually, but like, that's a whole other thing. Um, I, I just like, I'm, I was very impressed by that. And I think that, that even the like sort of, um, the, the ways in which the movie fails its own premise, uh, didn't really, uh, kill it for me entirely, you know? Um, especially like, it's so good because like right after they finish that, the song, she, she goes to get the drink from, uh, Rocco and Rocco says like, uh, no, I'm not giving you it. And she's like, but you promised. And he says, so what? And besides you were rotten. Like he just spits it. And it's such a good, like, like, uh, punctuation on that scene. And that's so what Rocco has always been about, right? Like he's the guy who tells you it's fair and he gives you an unloaded gun. He's a guy who tells you he's going to, um, reciprocate. And then he doesn't, it's like a really good character moment also. Truly. Um, really quick shout out. I know we're coming up on time here. Uh, we didn't really talk about the music a ton. Um, I, it was good. I don't know, uh, if it was like the, the, the big thing of the movie, but, um, shout out to Max Steiner, uh, who composed the music for this film. He's kind of like, a, a I don't know, sort of a, a iconic legendary, um, composer he's i mean just like reading off uh the films he was responsible for the music for you got casablanca gone with the wind the searchers king kong treasure of the sierra madre hey um the big sleep arsenic and old lace um God white damn. heat uh it looks what looks to be maybe the classic, the original classic. a star is born uh the 1937 version so just like a, a lot of hits he he has 243 credits in his letterbox entry um or profile for composer and then his biography says uh he actually composed over 300 film scores so it it's makes you think about the, the stuff that's maybe buried oh sorry what was that harry no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I just said he's like the Takashi Miike of film composing. <laughs> That's right. Um, but yeah, uh, shout outs. Uh, what's up, Aaron? Oh, I was uh, I was sighing at uh, Harry bringing up Takashi Miike on a, a Key Largo oh. uh, podcast. <laughs> uh, I was I was going to very th- thank you very much for bringing that up. I feel like the score in this film is very good. Uh, I think at times maybe slightly <laughs> too. What's that squeak? At times, there's uh, it's maybe slightly too loud, uh, but I think it kind of works. Uh, there's a scene specifically earlier in the film where the music does a lot of the work. Actually, like, like if you think about how much this movie 
um, actually kind of like delves into uh, the past of Frank McLeod. It doesn't actually do that much. Um, a lot of the feelings we get hearing about his time in the war and his friendship with George is due to the music playing at the same time. It helps us kind of feel uh, the emotions that that he is feeling as he kind of thinks back on that time and as his dead friend. Um, Definitely. Really wonderful score that touches on like being a bit too present at times, but it, it's so sweeping and like it helps carry the audience that it, I think it works in the end. The first act is definitely the best part of this movie, right? Like when, when they're doing all of that, like, when he's reminiscing about the past and like he's he's meeting Lauren Bacall's character, man, that is such a dynamite part of this movie. Yeah, I'd agree with uh, that. Yeah, uh, I I'll go a bit against Harry's uh, uh, pessimism on World War II and say that uh, although I realize that uh, intellectually I am wrong, uh, the watching uh, like somebody reminisce about an old war buddy or whatever is still like weirdly emotional. Despite the fact that I've not known anybody that, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's really good. Same thing at white Christmas. There's kind of similar, there's a similar bit uh, that I like quite a bit. It works. Yeah. And I mean, like, I think it, it, it works regardless of how you feel about the sort of like macro historical perspective. Right. Because like the whole movie is about how, like what Frank was fighting for wasn't necessarily what, like the his country was sending him to fight for, but his idea of what he was fighting for is still worthwhile, and therefore, like it's still valid, right? Like his his friends are still heroes; he's still a hero because of what he was doing for what he believed in. For sure. Well, uh, I have a couple of shoutouts. Uh, one, there's a shot near the oh, it's in the middle of the first act before the jig is up and people realize that the mafia has invaded this uh, boarding house in the middle of Key Largo, um, where the camera is mounted on a boat, but pointing at all the actors that are on the pier. And it just like like naturally pans in and out with them as they're you know reining it in. This is right after I think he says that his first love was about, or maybe just before. Uh, that is a wonderful shot. I think that the whole movie is like delightfully shot, um, not like surprisingly, but just very competently. Uh, and then I wanted to maybe this is another discussion point, but like, did I miss something? What what does Rocco whisper to Nora several times throughout the movie? Is he just dripping poison in her ear about Frank? Can't or? tell. It's like purposefully, uh, well, yeah. at least one scene is like purposefully like too quiet to hear. Yeah, I actually really, really like that bit. I think that like the I, the implication is it's like it's really dirty shit, right? Like it's it's awful stuff that he's whispering to yeah, her. Yeah, yeah, but she's like she, she's always like I don't know, caught up doing something else, or she's just come off of saying something when he says it. So it's, it seems like very I don't know, like he's trying to influence what she's thinking about what's going on, or maybe about Frank himself. Uh, it's never like made textual, never brought to the forefront, but I just find it like whenever he did it, it was like, Ooh, creepy. Yeah. I know that he's a criminal. Yeah. I know that he's, uh, you know, pinning crimes on other people, but ew, he's also pretty creepy. And Edward G. Robinson, uh, you know, looking like a full grown baby, uh, is, is intimidating me from 60 years in the past. Uh, but that is the end of my shout outs. Did anybody else have any quick one-offs? Yeah, I've got, I've got two, I guess for one, I, I'm sorry if I'm stealing this from Aaron, but like, all-time entrance of our boy Edward G. Robinson, right? Like, when he is introduced in this film, he is naked in a sudsy bath. And it's like, this is the first time you saw... I swear to God, I heard the voices of Jason and Aaron in my head, like... Should have shown Dong. Uh, (laughs) You do not see Dong. There he is, is, the boy himself. So, uh, big shout-outs to that. Uh, Big shout-outs to also the fact that, like, this movie is such a fun illustration of, um, of, like, the unbelievable star power of Lauren Bacall and Humphrey Bogart and Edward G. Robinson, because like 
it's it's kind of like uh in um on the waterfront with Marlon Brando where like he is just like so unbelievably good in that movie that he kind of makes the movie worse in some weird ways because like everybody else has to act around him and it's like he's doing something that's so on another level but like I loved that like these poor henchmen have to act next to Lauren Bacall and Humphrey Bogart. And like, they are given some like very, very 1948 script, right? Where there's one guy who keeps like reading jokes in a newspaper and Mm -hmm. laughing about them. And like, there's a guy that's trying to be intimidating and he's saying things like I was the electrician. And it's like, Oh man, like it's so rough to like, to watch these guys act and like, they're doing a fine job, but like they're next to like Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall who like invented this shit. Right. And it's, it's so funny to like, so like this this movie that feels so strikingly modern in so many ways that just like also has like these aw shucks characters from a very nice yeah yeah movie. you're you're like you, somebody tells you that you're very very good at finger painting and then sits you down next to Rembrandt and it's like well yeah you're still very good at finger painting um we're going to introduce our final segment of the show then if Harry can pop back on that hot mic and uh, let us know what we're about to what we're about to get into. I would love to, Jason. It is the segment that we like to call <gasps> Cody's, Cody's Noties. Wow. Thank you, as always, gentlemen, for that uh, that hospitable introduction. Um, fellas, bust out your bibs and prepare for an onslaught of sandwichy goodness because it is time for Bogies Hoagies. Oh, my God. Whoa. All right, so... Uh, so here's here's what's gonna happen. Um, we'll see how this goes. Prior to this recording, I uh, I poked around the internet and found sandwiches that one could find at actual real life eating establishments that are named after and or inspired by uh, the iconic actor Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> Holy shit! Bogey. You are outdoing yourselves, Cody. Uh, what I'll need from each of you fellas is uh, a list of five ingredients. Each of you will pick five ingredients that you think would be found in a Humphrey Bogart sandwich. Um, please keep your ingredients to sandwich fillings only. So you don't need to specify bread or anything like that, but you know, any non-bread ingredients are, uh, are on the table, so to speak. Um, so you got your meats, your cheeses, sauces, anything like that. Uh, and what we'll do is pit your ingredients against the ingredients of three real world Humphrey Bogart sandwiches and see if there's any overlap between your ingredients and theirs. Uh, for every ingredient that overlaps, that contestant will receive a point and the person with the most overlapping ingredients by the end wins. Um, what I will ask is, uh, you know, a, a certain level of specificity with your picks. Um, so you like, if you say cheese, but the menu says a specific type of cheese, which it will in this case, then you will not get that point. So, you know, just like the type, the type of cheese, the type of, you know, meats, you know, you can't just say meat, um, meat. Uh, so anyways, I'm also just kind of vamping uh, a little bit to give you fellas time to think, but basically I'll collect ingredients going by alphabetical order by last name. So Jason, Aaron, Harry is the order we'll go with. Uh, like I alluded to, I have no idea what to expect from this. Um, other than the fact that I will probably get very hungry as we go because I have not eaten anything today. Um, but I, I will keep vamping here. Um, and, and maybe, Checking with you folks in a few Jason seconds. Potentially just yeah. edit, edit the middle part. I don't know. I don't want to set him up for too much work here, but uh, it's up to him. Is the yeah, producer. yeah, that's or true. That's true. In. He yeah he he's got a he's got a lot on his mind. Understandably, um, as he's as he and the rest of you fellas are, are thinking of ingredients. Um, uh, Jason, your hand popped up. Are, are you okay? Do you need do you need a lifeline? Are you you're you're good? That was just a friendly, no, I'm here. I'm still the producer. Thank you. Okay. (laughs) Very good. Um, 
yeah, much to consider here. Uh, you know, the what type of flavor uh, or flavors Humphrey Bogart evokes sort of as a person. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm trying very hard to just like vamp, but not in a way that leads people one way or another. Uh, folks at home, feel free to, to play along here and see how you match up with our fine contestants on Bogies Hoagies today. Um, you can use this time to, uh, you know, uh, think of bogey sandwich ingredients. Um, maybe if that segues into you, like making a shopping list for later today, you know, maybe you for maybe, you know, Aaron will say an ingredient that's like, Oh shit, I forgot. I do need to pick that up at, you know, target or wherever you're closest to. Um, maybe it's a high V maybe you're listening to this and you're in the state of Minnesota and you're by a, a high V this vamping is going really well. Uh, how, how are you fellas coming along here? Are we, it's five ingredients, right? I'm five a hard fucking time, man. So th- these are, to be fair, it's not like there's. W- I'm not building one sandwich. I'm trying to think of the five most common. Uh, right. Yeah. You're, yeah. You're, you're, you want to cast as wide a net as possible to get all as my many ingredients points, are as many overlapping ingredients. Shit. Like I, I've got like I'm not gonna say it right. I don't want to tip anybody, but I've got like the most normal shit on my list, and it's like I, uh, I'll think about something. Give me a minute. Sure, sure. Um, I, I guess I, I will um, also sort of defer here to Jason. I mean, if he's ready, that's sort of my cue to start. But I, I don't want to rush you, Jason. I, How are you doing? No, I, I, I refuse to, um, I refuse to edit this. So I'm just going to go top of my head uh, from from the three that I've written down. Um, I'm going to say that from the, from the three, you know, we need five, right? Yes, I do know. I'm going to okay, make okay. the other two as I'm reading the three. Perfect. Gotcha. Yeah, Thank whenever you, you're ready. I uh, think on my feet. Um, I won't talk about feet anymore because Aaron already brought them up. Uh, <laughs> this the sandwich is going to have long sliced pickles on it. Uh, it is going to have not not the coin shaped you know crinkle cut, but long like lengthwise. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking of the boat from the African Queen. I'm just imagining him pulling a large pickle <laughs> behind him. Um, I, I'm going to say that it has uh, like like strained but but cooked black beans on it. Um, I'm thinking of the color of the Maltese Falcon. Uh, mm-hmm. It has, uh, like, I'm just for simplicity's sake, like deli cut square sharp cheddar cheese on it. I'm thinking of mm-hmm. um, the treasure of the Sierra Madre. Uh, it has onion rings on it. Um, I I don't know why. Uh, and oh hell, um, I'll say fried onion rings. I'm sorry, fried onion rings, and mm-hmm. uh, one quarter pound of uh, Angus beef. Thank you. Gotcha. Thank you very much. That's uh, next up, the stuff dreams are made of. Most <laughs> unhealthy sandwich I've ever heard. <laughs> uh, Aaron, what's uh, what's your sandwich looking like over there, big boy? I got to say, I'm really. I think I'm. I've let myself down here. Have you with... bit off too much more than you can? Never mind. Go ahead. <gasps> no, no, no. You can. Got a good one there. Uh, no, I. Yeah, this is this is pretty. Uh, this is this is pretty, I think, boring. But so I think the Key Largo uh, thing got me thinking kind of about a, a Cubano, uh, like Cuban sandwich. You know what I mean? Like a classic. So I'm going to go with ham, I think. Um, is ham specific enough or do you need some sort of? Yep. No, that's uh, fine. OK, yeah, I think ham. Uh, I think usually on a, a Cubano, you usually get Swiss cheese. I was thinking cheddar first, but after hearing Jason, I think I'll go with the Swiss cheese. That's more like a Cubano thing. And it's it's not copying there. Um Lettuce is not on uh, a Cubano, but I think I'm going to say lettuce for this one because I think it's, it's a wide enough net. It's a classic, um, and I feel like I feel like it's it's 
very emblematic of, of who you think of Humphrey, uh, Humphrey Bogart, right? He's kind of the, <laughs> the classic American actor. He's like such a strong presence. I think the ham and the cheese is obviously very classic. You got to go with the lettuce as well. That's another classic component. Of this is metagaming. I don't shut up. Shut up. Uh, pickles. Uh, I got to go with pickles as well. Uh, just I'm literally just thinking of a Cubano. I really want a Cubano. Uh, so I think pickles. Uh, and lastly, uh, uh, Humphrey Bogart was a uh, mayo-ass white boy. So I think I'm going to go with mayo, and uh, that's going to be my fifth ingredient. Got you. Perfect. I appreciate. I I was not anticipating rationales for these, but holy buckets! Thank you, fellas, uh, for for your your kind of trains of thought as you're chugging through here. Uh, last stop before we we hit our destination, Harry. What's your sandwich looking like, buddy? Yeah, I don't have rationales. I was just thinking about the taste of Humphrey Bogart. I'll let you interpret hmm, that uh-huh. however you wish. Uh, and hmm. I'm going to go with uh, pastrami. Gray Poupon mustard. So like, I guess I wanted to say just like a fancy mustard, but I thought that wouldn't be um, specific enough. So I guess that you can give me a partial point if it's a different kind of mustard. Uh, Mayo, like Aaron said, Um, roast beef, and then Havarti cheese is the cheese that I decided to go with. I'm not. Goddamn. I don't know if you'll win this, but you did think up the best tasting sandwich. You really did. I'm just very happy, I think. And I really, really want the sandwich now. Boy, oh boy. Um, yeah, we'll... God, I'm so fucking hungry. Uh, you fellas did not disappoint. Thank you so much for your ingredients here. And uh, now now for the main event here. Arguably, that was the main event. Here's the other main event. Uh, we're going to run down these sandwiches one at a time. Once again, we got three of them here. I will be giving proper credit to uh, the eating establishment as well as the specific sandwich. And we'll throw links into the episode description so folks can kind of look up these places for themselves. Again, these places actually exist. Um, kind of the point of the game. Um, for our first sandwich, we'll be heading to bogies straight out of uh abilene texas uh hopefully i said that right don't at me um actually if i mispronounce it you can at me that's fine um i would like to know coincidentally enough the sandwich uh, that we'll be going through today is actually called bogies hoagie i swear to god i thought of that independently before coming across the specific sandwich on the internet but i understand if nobody believes me um so i'm going to read off the description as it's listed on their website and we will pay Special attention to the ingredients, um, and I, I got my own sort of rulings for these ingredients. So, so you know, just we'll keep it together here until the end. There are seven ingredients in this sandwich. Um, so, just reading this off: eight dollars and twenty-five cents, a five-star performance by ham, cotto salami, Genoa salami, and each of those instances, I'm just ruling as salami since nobody here picks salami. That's kind of a, a moot point. Provolone cheese and a hoagie roll, um, which, again, we're not counting bread here. A special cameo appearance by creamy Italian dressing, lettuce, and tomato. Uh, So let's see which of our participants had overlap with those seven non-bread ingredients. Um, Jason, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think you had any overlap with that sandwich. I Um, wanted to avoid as cleanly as possible any measure of success. (laughs) Thank you for doing that. That makes for quite an interesting game. Um, Aaron, I think you have a overlap here with ham and lettuce. lettuce if I'm reading too. that correctly. And uh, the the ghost in the chat, Harry, I don't think actually has any overlap with this anything here. For lettuce? Every fucking sandwich has lettuce. This is metagaming bullshit. It's not in It's not metagame. It's a classic. It reminds me of Humphrey Bogart and his classic performance. Yeah. Well, before we get too uh, 
bogged down by that, let us move on to the next sandwich, shall we? Uh, next up, we've got the Peacock Cafe in Washington, D.C. Uh, let's see what comprises their uh, sandwich, which is just called Humphrey Bogart. Very fitting. Uh, there are five ingredients here. Uh, $15.50. Uh, prosciutto di Parma, which I'm going to rule as ham. That's what that is, right? Am I? Can anyone here correct me? You can. I don't, I don't, I don't think, think, I think personally you should not. Honestly, I, I think that think so? should not be right. I, yeah, I mean, I think it's a, okay. If I ordered a ham sandwich and it was prosciutto instead, I'd be a okay. little upset and vice right. versa. Yeah. You know what? Fair enough. Uh, prosciutto di Parma, fresh mozzarella, tomato, basil, and olive oil. So those are the five. Uh, olive oil is sixth choice. Damn it. Um. Hey, fair. Uh, man, bummer we didn't expand this. That would be a lot of calculus for me to do, and is I'm that having a big a lot goose of egg for these. all of us. I think that is a goose egg for everybody. Classy um, move, by the way, rejecting bruschetta, uh, um, bruschetta, Aaron. I appreciate it. Was that. classic. Thank you. I on it. I was not expecting that. He's um, well. He's, he's honestly. He's, 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 rec- he's recognizing the virtue of being completely and utterly like irreparably wrong uh, by. By in his second round, choosing to be wrong, he he's late to the train. I was the original one who's just I never had a chance of being right here. at this at all. Infinitely yeah. better than my two competitors. So, yeah, the reason why he was so um, classy about that is because he chose lettuce like a coward, and so he's obviously going to win this. And finally, we will. Uh, Best to, to let the, the bickerings fly. <laughs> I did not want to cut off that juicy oh, content, yeah. fellas. Lettuce and tomato and mustard and... Uh, <laughs> Last sandwich is just lettuce six times. <laughs> uh, and finally, we're uh, concluding our sandwich tour in, in Lettuce, Missouri for the, the lettuce sandwich. No, it's Marshfield, Massachusetts at the Brant Rock Hop. This is another sandwich simply called Humphrey Bogart. And uh, fair warning, this may or may not still be on their menu. I was able to find it as its own sort of like web page on their website, but I didn't see it listed on the regular, like their actual menu page. So maybe do some additional digging before you, uh, you know, you book a trip to Massachusetts. Uh, but in any case, this sandwich's description is as follows. We've got just four ingredients on this one. It's $10.29. We've got pastrami salmon, fried egg, dill, and sliced tomato on bread of choice. Uh, goose eggs across the board. Jesus. Uh, unless... Unless, uh, unless I'm not seeing, and funnily enough, that uh, that lettuce point didn't actually matter in in the end because Aaron, with a uh, an astounding two zero zero lead, has, uh, has won out Bogies Hoagies. Um, before I kind of wrap up the bid, is there is there any um, any uh, kind of crosstalk or popping off um, that anybody would like to do? Uh, I eat a lot of sandwiches. I, I did say pastrami. That was my first ingredient. Pastrami salmon. Is I mean, the I, ingredient. I didn't specify, but you know what I, salmon is. Could have been. I could Are have been aware of the difference between fish and poultry. I, I'm just saying I didn't specify. I, so technically, I was referring to a, a cut. I think. Okay, folks. So this is really. The I literally kind asked of, you to be specific, so you get points. Expertise and education that kind of differentiates kind of the winners from the losers. Now, myself, I'm a I'm a sandwich guy. You know, I go to a restaurant. There's a very good chance that I will order a sandwich, some sort of a sandwich. Uh, I'm on sandwich message boards. I have sandwich uh, merchandise. Uh, I may make a sandwich from day to day. You know. Um, yeah, I got nothing. 
Nice. Well, um, as a sort of, <laughs> uh, hey, bogeys, ogies, baby. Thanks for playing everyone. As a sort of cool down or maybe a palate cleanser from all of this excitement, uh, I did want to share a little something I found while looking up sandwiches on the internet. This is a TripAdvisor review of a, a restaurant. We'll also put a link to this write up uh, in the episode description. It's, it's a, a five star review from February 2017. And the title of the entry is Did Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall Eat Here? Here's what it says. When you're driving along the overseas highway from Miami to Key West and you arrive at Key Largo, you have to stop. Remember the 1948 movie with Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall, Edward G. Robinson, and Lionel Barrymore? It put Key Largo on the map. So my wife and I decided to have lunch at the Buzzard's Roost, which sounds like a place where Bogart and Bacall would have had lunch. Located at 21 uh, 21 Garden Cove Drive at mile marker 106.5, it overlooks Garden Cove Marina, a uh, pine-paneled seafood eatery on the waterfront with outdoor seats, a tiki bar, and live music. The uh, restaurant also offers steaks, homemade desserts, a full-service bar, and a large wine selection. This is what Florida is all about, dining on the waterfront with a salty breeze blowing in your face. We started with peel-and-eat shrimp, baked brie, and live lobster bisque we passed up the sandwich menu big mistake imo this is uh, my own editorializing um for a couple of dinner-like entrees the fried shrimp basket and the chicken fingers basket dessert was as good as advertised we chose key lime pie and caramel granny smith apple pie but we could have picked bananas foster or bread pudding or coconut cake or chocolate turtle pie or grand marnier creme brulee bogart and bacall would have loved this place. End of entry. Thank you. My God, that leaves so much color. Hungry. I am very hungry now. Um, Also, these adults got chicken fingers. Chicken fingers. Don't come on. Don't shit talk chicken fingers. Uh, Is it an adult thing? No, I I love chicken fingers. But like when in when in Key Largo, man, come on. They're on an app. They're on an app list. You know, maybe maybe they got the the sample platter. You know. Uh, I, I, I apologize for besmirching the good name of these uh, Yelp reviewers. Thank you so much, Cody, for a particularly delicious edition of Cody's Noties. This has been our episode about Key Largo, a 1948 film directed by John Huston. You can find it at the Trilon. Uh, well, never mind. You could find it at the Trilon, but it is playing as part of a longer series on Florida Noir. We're going to be covering a good number of these movies um, over the next few weeks. So tune in for another one of those and hit the Trilon or trilon.org for tickets to uh, future showings in this series. My name is Jason Daphnis. This is Trilove. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I've been Cody Narvison. Uh, I have no idea what I'm going to eat next, but I got to eat something. Otherwise, I'm going to keel over. Um, you can find my updated status on however that goes at uh, 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 on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Thank you. Hey, I'm Harry, and um, the Hilo is like two blocks from my apartment, and they have a really good Cuban sandwich, uh, guys. So how's about we do something about that maybe after the uh, the podcast wraps here? So you can maybe find me at the Hilo um, several days ago from when this came out. Uh, otherwise, you can find me on Twitter at Shitaki Harry. Uh, my name is Aaron. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at RB, please. I can recommend the Cuban at the high-low. It is very good. I think I might go to the beach after this uh, and really get the Key Largo vibes uh, going. So maybe I'll find somewhere over there to order a Cuban as well. But uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Oh, Angel, another beer for the gentleman. 
See, I play the long shots. Betting on a favorite? What do you win? When a horse comes in for me, he pays plenty. Take fancy free. Morning line, 12 to 1? Well, <laughs> that's ridiculous. He should be 4 to 1. Even less. Look at that breeding. By chance play out of misconstrue by Omaha. Of course, he hasn't won in 11 starts, true, but he's been twice in the money, and today he's running a $3,000 claiming race. Ought to be a cinch! What happened?